from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Maggie Penman. It's Wednesday, May 27th. Today, a mental health crisis in America. How the coronavirus is spreading across the country. And why the dishes are piling up. So last week, the U.S. Census Bureau put out this whole tranche of data. And buried in in that data was this statistic that shows a third of Americans are showing signs of clinical anxiety or depression. So if you had 100 American adults in a room, this is how it breaks down. You, 34 of them would be showing symptoms of anxiety, depression, or both. 20 would be showing symptoms of both of these things. 10 would be showing symptoms of anxiety alone and four of depression alone. And it's pretty alarming. It's the most definitive sign yet of how this pandemic is just taking a really huge toll on mental health. My name's William Wen. I'm a health reporter for The Washington Post. So how did the Census Bureau actually get these numbers? They started this unusual survey just at the end of April. It's this emergency coronavirus survey that asks about a whole bunch of things, about financial health, about actual health, and then unemployment rates, a whole household kind of survey. And then what they did is they included four questions in this long 20-minute survey. And those four questions are taken word for word from these screener questionnaires that doctors use to try to catch symptoms of depression and, and clinical anxiety. And in the most recent data released, they contacted a million households through phone, texts, emails. More than 42,000 responded, which is a small number of that. But because of the methodology they used, it's quite representative of the country. So how do these numbers compare with the numbers from before the pandemic? There's some data from 2014 that is a very similar kind of survey type. And it shows this huge jump, as much as double the amount of depression that was found in the general population. For example, one of the four questions, it was about how often people experience depressed mood. And so before the pandemic, you had 25% of adults saying they experienced depressed mood. And during this pandemic, that number's jumped up to 50%. Wow. So that that's a huge jump. Yeah, it, it's pretty alarming. People had been predicting that mental health would take a big hit. You might see a lot of increases in substance abuse, suicide, or overdose deaths. But this is kind of like the first real-time data we have of just how this is playing out. So how are these numbers different across different states and demographics? That's one of the really interesting things. Because this is such a rigorous study, it's from the U.S. Census, they had all of this kind of state-by-state breakdown. And it's it's kind of weird. Like, you know, New York, which was hit the hardest out of any state in the country, it was ranking 12th in terms of the share of adults showing clinical anxiety, depression. But then you have places like Mississippi. You had nearly half of people in Mississippi screening positive for anxiety or depression. Um, and then you have places, you know, like Iowa, 
just over a quarter screening positive. So a lot of variation across the country. And did anything about the data line up with what we know about income or poverty levels in different states? Even before the pandemic, you know, some groups are hit harder with mental health. And what happened, according to this data, is during the coronavirus, that's only deepened. One finding was that the poorer you were, the higher these rates of anxiety and depression are. You know, it's really stark differences. Like you had among people making like 150,000, for example, you know, 60% of them said, no, uncontrollable worry is not something I experience ever. Meanwhile, you know, the lower and lower you get in the income, the higher that uncontrollable worry gets. So when you start asking this question of people making like less than 25000 a year, for example, that the number is just huge. And only like 30% said they didn't have uncontrollable worry. So there's some like signals of kind of what's driving some of these rates, especially if you think about like what poorer people are experiencing. These are low-wage jobs where you don't have the same protections, you can't work from home. Um, These are people who are struggling most with unemployment now. So I think that that is like a really big worry is the economic kind of side of the mental health equation. So you have a lot more higher rates of anxiety and depression among young adults, women, and the poor. And the young adults especially is really worrisome. And it's kind of counterintuitive. You think this virus is attacking older people. They're much more likely to die or be critically ill. But young people, even before the pandemic, what was happening is you had this huge increase in suicide stress just across the board with with young people. And so in the pandemic, a lot of experts are saying we have to pay attention to what's happening with the youth. There's all this talk about reopening schools, going back to universities, and a lot of that is focused on logistics, like how far should the desks be spaced apart? What's the teacher-student ratio? And not enough is being paid attention to, you know, what is the psychological mindset of a lot of these students? How are they doing? What's a way that we can actually check up on them and give them support? So I imagine in a doctor's office or a hospital when these kinds of screening questions are asked, there would be some follow-up, right? Like you wouldn't just screen someone for severe anxiety or depression and then not follow up with some sort of intervention. So is there anything the government is planning to do to help these people? That's the really interesting thing is when I was talking to psychiatrists and therapists about this, when they ask these screeners, they always follow up with either a more in-depth screener to try to pinpoint what's going on, what the problem is, or connecting the patient with therapy, antidepressants, psychiatrists that they can work with. You never like, for example, you don't diagnose someone with cancer and then just send them on their way. So I brought this question to the census and CDC that ran the survey. And they were making the point that, you know, it's not feasible to, you know, try to, you know, treat hundreds of thousands of people involved in a survey. And that's not our role. But I think what the larger point that the psychiatrists were making is that you don't ask these questions and you don't try to find a problem and identify it without trying to address that problem then. So now that the government knows about this, some of these psychiatrists are telling me, like, the key question is, what are you going to do about it? 
you know, you, you now have screened, you know, basically a third of the country positive for clinical anxiety and depression. Where is the funding to support that? Where's kind of like the mobilization of an army of mental health kind of workers? Um, how are you supporting these mental health clinics that are kind of closing down across the country because of um, state and federal budget cuts? There was, I got a lot of sense of frustration from, from talking to people on the front lines of mental health. Like, we know this is a problem. We've been talking about it for months. We've been warning about it. Now that the data is here, like, what are we doing about it as a country? William One reports on health and science for The Post. When coronavirus first arrived in the United States, it was happening mainly in Kirkland, Washington, city near Seattle. But then it spread in places like New Orleans, Detroit, and New York City. Metropolises, these big international travel hubs, And I think that pattern, it lent credence to this idea, this false idea, that COVID-19 was just a city problem. But it spread to rural America soon enough, and we're seeing that more than ever now. The virus is also starting to hit rural America. Take a look at this map showing the growing surge of infections in rural areas. Unique challenges to fighting the virus in rural communities. My name is Reese Thibault. I'm a reporter at The Post who, since about March, has been covering coronavirus and coronavirus death. While the biggest outbreaks are in cities, out in rural America, many communities have mobilized against the virus. In this story, we analyzed data from counties across the country and found that Cases and deaths per capita were increasing faster in rural counties than in bigger cities. And if you look at a list of these hard-hit places by cases and deaths per capita, you can see a bunch of examples. There are places like Randolph County in Georgia. In Randolph County, out of 149 cases total, 7,000 people live there. 55, more than one-third, happened at Joanne Bergen Nursing Home in Cuthbert. Lincoln County in Arkansas. There's an outbreak at a rural, unnamed Arkansas church. Population 13,000. 401 people in Lake County have tested positive for the virus. Lake County, Tennessee, 7,500 people live there. Most of them are tied to the Northwest Correctional Complex. So you can really see this checkerboard of outbreaks in the numbers. The United States is not experiencing one uniform epidemic that sweeps across the country like a wave. It's more like a bunch of separate outbreaks that all happen on their own timelines. And that's the checkerboard. It's like a patchwork or like whack-a-mole or whatever analogy you choose. They they flare up in one place and then die down and, and maybe flare back up again. So what are the areas that are experiencing higher rates of the coronavirus now? And what do these places tend to look like? So over the last month, we've seen new cases, the rate of new cases, fall in these bigger cities, some of the earliest hit cities, places like New York and New Orleans and Detroit. 
and they're falling faster there. But new cases are not falling in rural counties, these smaller counties, these more spread out counties. So when you look at the 25 rural counties with the most cases per capita, 20 of them have either a meatpacking plant or a prison where the virus took hold and then spread outward to the community. So the people who are working there are the most vulnerable, and especially those who staff meatpacking plants, many of whom are immigrants and some of whom are undocumented. So as the country starts to reopen, there's a big worry that rural communities are not at the same point in their outbreak timeline as some of these larger cities. Where did you get the data that you were analyzing for this story? So we analyzed case and death data that the Post has been collecting since the beginning of the outbreak. We've been scraping it from county and state health department websites. And we analyzed the per capita rate of cases and deaths on a county level. And then we took a look at the hardest hit counties from a death and case perspective. And we looked at where those outbreaks tended to happen. Can you give me some examples of the places most impacted by the new checkerboard spread of the coronavirus? So one of the places impacted is Texas County, Oklahoma. It's a sparsely populated county in the Oklahoma panhandle. Texas County, our population is 15,000 at the most. Gaiman uh, is the uh, biggest city, which is around 12,000. And there's a meatpacking plant there, a pork processing plant. And the plant is uh, situated right after the outskirts of Gaiman. We talked to Dr. Jeffrey Lim, who is one of the county's few internal medicine physicians. I work as a solo practitioner at the internal medicine clinic. And he told us that most of his patients are Hispanic. I've seen a lot of coronavirus the past uh, four to six weeks, and most of them are Hispanic, and they work at the meat packing plant here in Gaiman. The company that runs that plant, Seaboard Foods, kept it open during the outbreak. It was deemed an essential business. The the plant actually has been implementing some screening measures. They do take the temperatures before a worker can come in, but a lot of them those say that uh, they'll take Tylenol like an hour prior to going to work. So when they screen them, they won't be febrile. They do have a like two dollar an hour uh, hazard pay uh, the past few weeks, and I think uh, this is providing an incentive for them to continue working even though they may have the COVID-19. The company told us that as of May 20th, more than a quarter of their 1,600 employees had active cases of COVID-19. So Dr. Lim has said that that's one reason for the outbreak, but he's also complained that few people in town are wearing masks or seem to be taking the outbreak seriously even as cases there spike. Basically, the restaurants, most of them are open right now. I mean, if you just look at the parking lot, it's packed. When you go in, uh, it's really packed. And I don't know if there's a disconnect. This is a predominantly conservative community, and he, Dr. Lim, said he's a Republican, but said that he's been to the local Walmart and... Practically no one's wearing masks. Maybe 10% of the people there are wearing masks. It's... uh, actually scary that uh, 
people are seem to be ignoring uh, CDC guidelines on social distancing. And it's something that frightens him. I uh, I don't think we are prepared at all. There's only three internists here and one family practitioner. Other clinics have closed. Uh, the pediatrician, the surgical clinic. We're left with four uh, active staff members uh, and one ER physician handling a multitude of cases. If we have a patient that we think needs to be on a ventilator, we do transfer the patient 120 miles east of here in Woodward, Oklahoma, because we don't have vents here and we don't have the nursing capacity to take care of patients on ventilators. And Texas County isn't the only rural place you reported on seeing a rise in COVID cases, right? So we saw increases in places like Decatur County, Indiana, where a local basketball tournament started a rampant infection. And we saw an uptick in Hillsdale County, Michigan. And we saw another uptick in Morgan County, Colorado, which is this county in Colorado's eastern plains. Our community is small, and so we don't have large resources. It's a challenge. Uh, our coroner's budget is minimal. And so we didn't have a lot of backup equipment. Doesn't have many people that live there, but it has this coroner. My name is Don Hare. I'm the Morgan County Coroner. I've been the coroner in this county for 22 years, and I also own the Hare Mortuaries and Crematory. He told me that he had to call in a mobile morgue. We have been a little bit overloaded uh, with our refrigeration system. One of those refrigerated trailers that we saw Mm -hmm. in New York City to help hold the dead bodies of the people in his county because they literally could not fit in county morgues. Wow. The mortuary has a total of eight or nine spaces, and we've had more deaths than that in a very short period of time. I don't know that you're ever prepared for what's been going on here. And have these rural places been able to take any lessons from the cities that have already gone through this peak in their cases? Yeah, some counties have been more prepared than others and have learned from the outbreaks that preceded them. In Decatur County, Indiana, uh, the four-person public health team actually had a pretty detailed plan. It was the old Ebola prep plan that they revamped for coronavirus, and they shut down shops, restaurants, and issued travel advisories relatively early. But even then, it was too late. And I think one of the big problems there was that they didn't get much help from the federal government. So one of their staffers told me that the Fed sent them fewer than 50 gowns and about 195 masks and a single box of gloves. And that box was already open when it arrived. They had to use an expired box of N95 masks that they had squirreled away in their buildings since H1N1 in 2008. So uh, some of these places are more prepared than others, um, but it will still depend. It'll depend on how local officials respond and how residents react and how the federal government helps out. As we're approaching 100,000 deaths from this pandemic in the U.S., What does this reporting tell us about the coming months? So 
in a lot of rural areas, hospitals don't have the same resources as they do in big cities. So when the virus spreads into the community, those healthcare centers are often not prepared for it. These are places with few beds, few doctors and nurses, few staff that aren't used to big surges of sick people. And there are some places where there's no hospital at all. We've seen a wave of rural hospitals close in the last decade. 130 have shut their doors. So even in normal times, rural America doesn't have enough health care resources. It tells us that the places most vulnerable may also be the places illest prepared. Reese Tebow is a reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing from writer Ellen McCarthy on why it's so hard to do the dishes right now. I just really believe in the law of inertia and that bodies in motion tend to stay in motion, but bodies at rest want to stay at rest. And so our movements are so limited and so small that it, it does seem like every activity is just a little bit harder to, to get the motivation up to do. One of the short phrases that has run through my mind a million times since we've started quarantining is ABC, always be cleaning, because I just feel like I am always cleaning. It's just never-ending task. I have three small children at home. There's six, four, and one. And so the chaos is overwhelming, you know? And for me, it feels like if I let it build too much, then we will just absolutely sink. And now we're eating three meals a day at home every day. It's bananas. You know, there's no school lunches. Nobody else is feeding them. And so that means not only preparing three meals a day, but also cleaning up after three meals a day. And it is really wearing. And you know what's almost worse for me is the cleaning up under the table. With little kids, the droppings (laughs) that just can't be gotten, except when you get down on your hands and knees and pick them up one by one. Um, There's just no way around it. And so all of these little things that have to be done and have always had to be done and we're no different than anybody else, it's just that it's so incessant now and, and there's no break. So I talk to people from all different walks of life, um, some with kids, some without kids. And I just spent a lot of time looking at social media about what people are posting about their relationship with their dishes right now. This one woman I spoke to, a 27-year-old artist in Seattle, she did this beautiful drawing of Sisyphus pushing uh, not a boulder up a hill, but a plate, right? Because that's how it felt to her, you know, Her process was to let the dishes stack until the next time she needed them to cook again. And so it was like, that's a double whammy too, right? Because then she had to wash the dishes, then start cooking, and then immediately look at another full sink of dishes. And so getting that energy up to to dive in and wash the dishes only to use them again, I, I think did seem like a gargantuan task. And this is such a small issue, right? We know that. It's it's nothing. The, the problems that exist in the world are so great and so acute and, and so horrifying to think about. And this is the least of them. It, it really is. And yet, also, 
it is one that we are all living with every day. And that is just sort of like one more tiny cut, you know, uh, that we're all sort of grappling with on a daily basis as we look at the horror of the world. And then we look at the horror in our own sinks, you know, it can all just feel like too much. And then you just want to go and take a nap and turn away from all of it. There is an upside here, which is that when the dishes do get done, you know, when they're all stacked in the drying rack or when you push start and the dishwasher takes over, you can feel a little sense of order in the midst of the chaos of the world. Ellen McCarthy writes for the Style section at The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag postreports. I'm Maggie Penman. Martine Powers will be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.